Welcome to This Is America, July 1st, 2022. On this episode, we speak with anarchist YouTuber and podcaster Andrew about anarchist media, climate change, and much more. We then switched our discussion. We were joined by Lee, an anarchist writer and theorist at Butch Anarchy, and we discussed the recent Supreme Court decision, ongoing protests in the streets, and their meaning. You can support both of these folks on Patreon, which are both linked in our show notes. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. Last Friday, East Oakland community members marked the one-month anniversary of an occupation of the Parker Elementary School in the Bay Area of California. Parker is one of several schools that the Oakland Unified School District has recently targeted for closure. Parents and students have been protesting the wave of attacks on public education, angry that school closures will hit working-class communities of color the hardest, forcing students to travel farther, often through unsafe environments, just to go to school. Over the past month, the collection of students, staff, and community members have occupied the campus, creating a radical summer school program complete with food, classes, and a wide range of activities and events. Despite ongoing angry protests at budget meetings, the Oakland Unified School District has remained firm in its commitment to close the school, but community members remain committed to continuing the resistance. The fight to defend the Atlanta forest continues. Currently, there is a speaking tour happening across the West Coast and the East Coast, with speaking events being organized all the time. Meanwhile, in Atlanta, a wide variety of actions continue in defense of the forest, from weekly community gatherings where local residents drop off supplies to support tree sitters, to the canvassing of local neighborhoods, direct physical disruption of construction in the forest, and a continuing chorus of direct action against the project. On June 2nd, in Columbus, Ohio, an office belonging to Atlas, one of the construction firms involved in the Cop City project, was smashed up. On June 5th, a new road blockade went up, complete with old cars, blocking a path for police to enter the forest. The day after, Defend the Forest activists visited the church of Michael Keller, leaving flyers on cars during a service demanding that Brassfield and Gorey, where Keller works, the project's general contractor, drop out of the Cop City project. Then on June 7th, a communique was posted that stated, quote, The earth-destroying machine that entered the forest yesterday, along with a few others, has been torched. On June 8th, a noise demo and protest was organized outside of the New York City office of Atlas, calling on them to drop the Cop City project. On June 10th, windows at an Atlas office in Tallahassee, Florida were busted out. Then on June 12th, every window and door at the Atlas construction office in Kansas City was smashed in solidarity with the Atlanta Forest Defense. Also, more tree sits have been erected in the forest, which are actively blocking construction, and there has been a new wave of tree spikings. Lastly, on June 30th, protesters took to the streets in Charlotte, North Carolina, and protested outside the offices of Brassfield and Gorey. With a call for a week of action from July 23rd to the 30th, 
resistance, and support for it shows no signs of slowing down in Atlanta. Hundreds of thousands have hit the streets in the last few days following the overturning of Roe v. Wade, a decision which has triggered many states to ban and criminalize abortion for millions of people. For a look at protest action directly following the ruling, check out our roundup linked in our show notes. Since last week, thousands more have continued to protest and face police repression. In so-called Sioux Falls, South Dakota, riot police arrested several protesters for shutting down a street as over a thousand marched against abortion becoming illegal in the state without exception, and doctors now facing felonies for performing the operation. In Boise, Idaho and Dallas, Texas, clashes broke out between protesters, and in New York City, people disrupted a Federalist Society event for funneling dark money into anti-choice reactionary causes and politicians. Direct actions in the struggle for bodily autonomy continued. On June 9th, according to a post on Puget Sound Anarchists, anonymous vandals in Vancouver, Washington defaced Options 360, an anti-abortion crisis pregnancy center. Late June 8th or early June 9th, they splashed red paint on the building and wrote Jane's Revenge in spray paint. This falls on the hills of similar actions in Linwood, Washington and Olympia, Washington in the last month. On June 12th, a communique posted to Philly Anti-Capitalist read, We smashed out all of the windows of the Hope Pregnancy Center on Broad Street. You're tired of your family values and you forcing families and your values on our bodies. This fake clinic spread lies and is part of a broader attempt to strip away bodily autonomy from hundreds of women and people. We are inspired by the actions of comrades in Wisconsin, Colorado, New York, and a growing list of places. Then on June 16th, Minnesota Citizens Concerned for Life, Sick, or MCCL is the largest anti-abortion organization in so-called Minnesota and responsible for untold amounts of suffering as a result of their anti-science propaganda campaigns, ghoulish legislative attempts at social control and support for hateful bigoted politicians. So, in a small gesture of defiance and joy, we decided to smash all their windows and leave them a message from our friend Jane. Their offices and infrastructure deserve the same fate if not worse than that of the dozens of fake pregnancy clinics in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area that carry out the vision of MCCL toward a hellscape in which pumping out the domestic supply of infants is the only thing people with a uterus are good for. Fuck them, the time of us reluctantly permitting their hatred for actual living people is over. We should have done more. Just because the task at hand is an urgent one, does not mean it cannot be met with glee. If we are continuously repressed, murdered, left to starve or to the hands of right-wing militias, there's no reason why we can't dance while we destroy. Turn our scream into a song and laugh in the face of an empire as it burns. And then on the 21st, a post on abolition media took responsibility for an action in Detroit. According to the Post, quote, a gang of criminal queers smashed the windows of two fake abortion clinics in the greater Detroit area, leaving the messages, if abortion isn't safe, then neither are you and fake clinic. On June 24th, in Glendale, California, the night of the Supreme Court decision, a communique was posted that stated, We decided to attack a crisis pregnancy center in Glendale, California with spray paint. The phrases written were, Jane was here, abort the court, and if abortion isn't safe, then neither are you. All across the country, people protested and revolted against this attack on bodily autonomy. As we predicted almost a month ago, 
The United States Supreme Court stripped millions of people of bodily autonomy and access to abortion. This is only the beginning of the attacks on autonomy in store from the courts and fascists. Up next on the chopping block is access to contraception, the legality of everyday queer life, and gay marriage. But this is part of a broader pattern of fascism within the United States. The same night, an anti-abortion center was set on fire and covered in graffiti messages in Colorado. Windows were busted out at a similar center in Vermont, while other acts of targeted vandalism took place in Everett, Washington, Portland, Oregon, Winter Haven, Florida, and in Lynchburg, Virginia. From the Lynchburg communique, Lynchburg is a hotbed of Christian fascism, home to the neo-Nazis of the Wolves of Vinland group and Jerry Farwell's Liberty University. We smashed out their windows and targeted their building with slogans and imagery ranging from coat hangers to vote blue lol. The ground in front of their now smashed front doors reads, if abortion ain't safe, you ain't safe. A new communique from Jane's Revenge, the underground group which claimed responsibility for direct actions across the U.S. in the struggle for reproductive freedom and autonomy, has also been released. Here's a snippet. The infrastructure of the enslavers will not survive. We will never stop, back down, slow down, or retreat. We did not want this, but it is upon us, and so we must deal with it proportionally. We exist in confluence and solidarity with all others in the struggle for complete liberation. Our recourse now is to defend ourselves and to build robust, caring communities of mutual aid, so that we may heal ourselves without the need of the medical industry or any other intermediary. Through attacking, we find joy, courage, and strip the veneer of impenetrability held by these violent institutions. And for the allies of ours who doubt the authenticity of the communiques and actions, there is a way you can get irrefutable proof that these actions are real. Go do one of your own. You are already one of us. Everyone with the urge to paint, to burn, to cut, to jam, now is the time. Go forth and manifest the things you wish to see. Stay safe, and practice your cursive. Jane's Revenge Finally, on June 11th, people came together to hold events, write letters, and show solidarity with long-term anarchist prisoners. In Philadelphia, people held a barbecue and wrote letters. In Portland, people held an event in a park and also wrote letters to prisoners. In Minneapolis, people held an event outside. And in Cincinnati, people held a fundraiser in solidarity with long-term anarchist and eco-prisoner Marius Mason. And now for some upcoming events. From late June to early July, there are Defend the Atlanta Forest events happening across the West Coast and the East Coast. Check our show notes for more information. From July 23rd through the 30th, there is a week of action to defend the Atlanta Forest being called. And on July 29th through the 30th, there is the Dual Power Gathering outside Chicago, Illinois. On August 4th through the 9th, there is the Earth First Summer Gathering happening in Northern California. And from August 6th through the 7th, there is the Montreal Anarchist Book Fair. August 13th through the 21st, we'll also see the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking putting on an anarchist summer school. And on August 20th, there's a Rock Against Racism mutual aid benefit show happening in Reno, Nevada. From September 10th through the 11th is the New York City Anarchist Book Fair. On September 18th, there is a Pushing Down the Walls benefit in Southern California for political prisoners. And finally, on October 15th, mark your calendars for the Radical Atlanta Book Fair. And finally, if you value what's going down as a revolutionary autonomous media resource in times of crisis and you have the means, please go to itsgoingdown.org shop. And that's itsgoingdown.org shop and help us grow. 
You can sign up to become a monthly supporter or give us a one-time donation. You can follow the podcast, check out our RSS feed, follow us on whatever podcast platform you prefer, listen to us on the radio, tell a friend about us, follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon. And finally, if you enjoyed this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us. Enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon. Hey, my name is Andrew of the YouTube channel Andrewism. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a writer, artist, and anarchist, born, raised, and based in Trinidad and Tobago. So how did you get into radical politics and social movements? Right, so, well, I was raised in a semi-conservative religious environment, and as I was sort of coming into myself and figuring out my religious beliefs and my spiritual beliefs, my philosophical beliefs, I was also developing my political beliefs. I nearly fell down a toxic rabbit hole of that sort of, like, right-wing conservative kind of vibe, but I caught myself before it ever got too bad, and I ended up being introduced to more progressive politics and anarchism specifically through Tumblr. Um, there's this one person on Tumblr who sort of introduced me to the very idea of anarchism and communism and all that. And from that, I was able to sort of get into more reading. I was able to watch some content. Um, I mean, I've had some political changes here and there, some slight tweaks, but I haven't strayed very much from the anarchist philosophy since I first learned about it and decided to adopt it. I got involved in some environmental organizing. That was my first, like, main form of organizing. Um, for Fridays for Future. Um, but of course, that had a couple of um, failures and issues. And so I learned from, you know, the uh, the failure of those groups and of those organizational um, faux pas and, and pitfalls. And so now I'm in the process of, you know, doing more research, more learning, more working with different sorts of people with a couple of different projects while balancing my book writing and, of course, my YouTube. Your YouTube channel is, you seem like one of the most prolific uh, YouTubers that's, like, creating, like, really engaging, like, really in-depth content. Oh, thank you. I'm just curious, like, what made you start doing YouTube? I was actually um, a blogger first. I had started blogging in late 2019 um, and really picked it up and kept it going, um in beginning of 2020 because in 2019 at the end of 2019 i was working at this really really uh mind-numbing office job and it was a lot of busy work a lot of like data entry stuff and so i needed something to keep my brain from turning to sludge and so i turned to like writing in my spare time on the work computer and stuff um covering like art and, and philosophy and just different ideas that was you know swirling around in my head um once i got out of that job um, I ended up working on the blog and writing a blog post every week all through January, February, March, April, May, so on and so forth, um, into the pandemic of 2020, really. Um, and then in mid 2020, I can't remember if it was June or July, um, I started working on a blog post about the education system. I mean, my, my blog post was always like geared towards a Trinbagonian audience. Um, but this one was supposed to be more general. Uh, I mean, the school system has a lot of similarities all over the world, um, as I get into in the video. But that post was getting to be a bit too long, and I figured people probably wouldn't want to read it, because it was much longer than I was used to. I didn't have that big of an audience anyway. 
Um, so I just, I turned into a video and the rest is history. I didn't intend to become a YouTuber when I started 2020, but that's where I am now. Just <laughs> learning about stuff and sharing what I learned. It just seems that like people that are creating like radical anti-colonial anti-capitalist content are up against you know the algorithm that is youtube i mean i'm sure you know you know better than anybody just how crappy it is i'm just curious your thoughts yeah, on like I, that's why i don't look at analytics <laughs> i guess what's your secret honestly it was <laughs> pure luck i would say about i don't know it's hard to boil it down to percentage points it's a lot of luck because you could be like super consistent you know you could be putting out Good quality, um, you know, you could be discussing topical topics, um, with a unique angle or a different voice or whatever. But honestly, it takes like luck. <laughs> it really takes luck to sort of get it noticed. You know, I was, when I first started, I was pushing it on Reddit. I was pushing it on Twitter. I didn't have like followings or anything significant anywhere. You know, I was pushing it on my WhatsApp. And on my, on my personal pages and stuff. And I mean, it took a while. Um, and I did a couple of times, you know, I got a little bit discouraged because, you know, I felt as though, you know, when is this going to pick up? But then a video that I actually, um, did not even intend, did not even think would be any sort of big deal ended up blowing up massively. And that would be the anti-capitalism is capitalist video. That video I actually delayed posting for like, two months because i was like eh, i don't know how i feel about this script but i was just like you know what let me just put it out and see what happens so that ended up being my first ever video to like break a hundred thousand views advice i would give i guess to people like hoping to grow on these platforms is just <laughs> find a niche you know develop your voice try to, try to reach your audience but it's not easy you gotta give it a try but it's not easy. You know, it takes a lot of dedication and luck. I would say collaborations as well, but yeah. in my experience, collaborations aren't as potent as they used to be in the early days of YouTube. Um, so, yeah. Are you able to, like, interact with your audience? Like, do you hear a lot of feedback from folks? When it comes to being a content creator, um, my whole thing is, <laughs> of one, avoid parasociality at all costs, and to protect my sanity. Um, I think it's pretty well known that YouTube is a hive of scum and villainy, <laughs> or at least the YouTube comments can be. Um, <laughs> so I, um, my whole rule is basically, um, for the most part, I try to stick to it 48 hours, 36 to 48 hours after video drops is like the maximum amount of time that I will, you know, like look at the comments because after like the regulars kind of pass through, it tends to um, degrade from there. So that's just a, a thing that I do to sort of protect like my mental health. So I don't have like hundreds or thousands of voices like buzzing in, in my head. Um, but when I do, you know, read the comments and stuff and most of the people thankfully have, have been, you know, genuine, um, generally seeking knowledge curious you know they respectful you know respectfully ask for clarification and that kind of thing and i find that people are looking for solutions um more than critiques and i know a lot of you know the left wing quote-unquote content on youtube is focused on critique but 
and critique of capitalism, you know, critique of various aspects, you know, of, of like patriarchy and whatnot. And those are all extremely valid and something I take part in myself. But I think it's equally important to be pushing solutions or at least gesturing towards solutions, you know, providing resources to help people, you know, reach their own conclusions and that kind of thing. What's been your favorite video you've done so far and what do you think has resonated the most with people and why? My favorite video is almost always the video that I'm working on at that point in time. Um, like it's always the piece that I'm just about to release. Um, so that's kind of a hard question to ask. I really appreciate my pieces on, you know, like anti-work, the turning of the clock, black anarchism, how to overthrow the Illuminati, rethinking family, youth liberation, and of course, solar punk. Because I think these are the videos that resonate with people a lot. I think they, directly confront a lot of the issues people see bubbling under the surface that they just want someone to articulate clearly, you know? Well, you mentioned the video on black anarchism. Uh, that's one of my favorites you've done. A fantastic introduction, and it kind of goes over key aspects and a lot of different thinkers and, and history. In the video, you mentioned contributions of non-anarchists such as Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, and Angela Davis, and you said they have now been properly acknowledged or appreciated. I was hoping if you could just talk a little more about uh, these contributions and, and why they're important. As I was, you know, now getting into progressive politics, Bell Hooks was one of the first political authors that I read, you know, from cover to cover. And her book, A World to Change, was especially crucial in that, you know. Her work on masculinity, patriarchy, and feminism, absolutely life-changing. I think the empathy she introduces to politics to the politics of the personal is absolutely vital for healing and growth in this movement for social revolution. Similar to Audre Lorde, you know, like she's contributed massively to black feminist thought, giving us prized quotes like, you know, the master's tools never dismantle the master's house. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. Revolution is not a one-time event. Without community, there is no liberation. You know, these ideas, these are absolutely crucial things we need to understand if we want to heal in our struggle, if we want our struggle to be healing. You know, of course, Angela Davis has also made fantastic contributions to abolitionist thought. Um, I also want to draw attention to Dr. Joy James, who I hadn't heard about when I made that video, but her work on abolition has been getting more attention and it's absolutely vital. Um, she has some speeches and stuff on YouTube that I recommend people check out. I'm still learning more about all their contributions, of course. I haven't, you know, read their whole repertoires, but, you know, it's it's very, very important stuff, and I encourage others to do the same. Well, another video you mentioned already is entitled Anti-Capitalism is Capitalist. You made a joke in the notes on that. You said a very pr provocative title. Right. So, I mean, essentially, the video is about the trendiness of a vague anti-capitalism. You know, this, this kind of nebulous, ideologically unspecific, reactive, entirely focused on critique, kind of faux ideology, and the way it's been commodified by capitalism itself. I mean, how often have we seen, like, media and stuff serving us anti-capitalism on a platter, praising anti-capitalism as, you know, something to consume, you know? We've seen how anti-capitalist media um has just been so hyper-focused on capitalism and not always on a way... And not also on a way out of it. And so in a way, I think it serves capitalist interests by fostering a sense of doomerism, a sense of, uh, to quote Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> there is no alternative, you know? 
um, I mean, Mark Fisher talks about this in Capitalist Realism. Is there no alternative? He posits the term Capitalist Realism to describe the current political situation where capitalist alternatives, or rather alternatives to the capitalist system, are just invisible and people are unable to even imagine a coherent alternative to it. And, you know, because this passive anti-capitalism is so prevalent, I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's still, it still operates firmly within the confines of capitalism, within this sort of resignation of the endurance of capitalism, a sort of like learned impotence. And so I think people just need to recognize that it's not enough to consciously object to capitalism. You have to fight it materially, you know, with strategies that actually work. And I mean, in that video, like I said, it was kind of a throwaway video for me. I didn't expect it to get so big. Otherwise, I probably would have gone in a bit more detail about like, you know, actually building solutions. But I mean, that's what I try to cover to some extent in, in all of my videos, even if it's just in the conclusion. In the so-called U.S., between Zoomers and Millennials, about 50 percent, you know, reject capitalism or consider themselves socialists now. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, where that sentiment goes and if it's just going to be sort of like you said, like a passive thing or just a kind of shrugging of the shoulders or if it's going to actually lead to, you know, actual organizing and solutions. I mean, that's the thing. Oftentimes, it I, I wouldn't want to dismiss and say, you know, everyone's just passive about it. I would say that, like, a lot of people, are when they do get active, in it, you know, it's a sort of activism that, again, is is very much stuck in capitalist sorts of limitations and stuck in like operating within the confines of the system, you know. So like people are organizing, but like while they're organizing, fervor is being funneled towards like dead end sort of um, solutions. You did a video on solar punk which I don't know if I've ever heard that term used. Let's talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sulfunk is a bit complex, right? Because everyone just has their own idea of what it is. I mean, people come to it from different angles. I mean, recently I've been seeing like NFT bros and like crypto heads and stuff trying to like adopt the label of Sulfunk. Um, and I mean, in a sense, I understand that because for a lot of people, it is just an aesthetic. But to a lot of other people, you know, it's a movement. It's, it's a, it's a genre. You know, it's, it's kind of on a spectrum from just pure aesthetic, hopeful imagining to actually building our collective futures here now. So the punk is like looking beyond the limitations of capitalism, beyond this rift between humanity and nature. And so it sort of empowers this project and vision of liberation that we can co-create for our unique local conditions, ecosystems and needs as you know we work towards a better society crucially of course it's not something that's imposed from above so it, it doesn't tend to be conducive to like the more authoritarian sort of approaches to climate problem solving you know like these sort of capitalist ventures and state projects it's this grassroots thing it draws a lot from the diy movement and from the permaculture movement and so it's able to incorporate a lot more voices, a lot more experiences, a lot more inputs from a wide range of people. And so I try to like blend it. It's already compatible with anarchism, but I try to blend it even more with anarchism because I found it's a very energizing and inspiring way to introduce people to anarchist ideas, particularly among Gen Z and among the climate movement. 
it's been a you know a great antidote to doomerism, basically. You know, we started talking. You said you were involved in like uh, Fridays for the Future and all that stuff. You know, we've been having kind of an ongoing discussion with uh, guests on this show. Like, how can that energy and those demonstrations sort of like transition, or can they transition into more of a direct action oriented, or even you know, like with Solar Punk building some sort of alternative, or linking up with you know indigenous anti-colonial struggles there's this book that i've been reading recently it's called prefigurative politics by um sophie sorry by sofa sour gradin and paul rickstad and if i'm pronouncing names correctly um it's called you know prefigurative politics building tomorrow today and in one section they basically address this whole idea of oppose and propose um or maybe mixing it up with another book I read, but this whole idea of oppose and propose, right? So oppose is, you know, those are the things we see a lot of, you know, we see a lot of protests, a lot of um, climate actions and, and demonstrations and, you know, even the occasional riot and sometimes even strikes. You know, we see a lot of oppose-based um, activity, but the realm of propose has been sort of limited to trying to introduce bills to parliament or to you know senate or i'm not exactly sure how like you guys government system works so i think it's the senate right y- yeah congress and the senate right 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 yeah um and so it's a lot of focus on that sort of reformist propose sort of thing and so i think what the climate movement needs more of is propose in the sense of creating the new in the shell of the old Mm-hmm. And of course, the oppose aspect, I think, needs to be a, be a bit more no nonsense. You know, if you are opposing, say, a pipeline's construction, and you have nothing to back it up but your words, you know, there, there's no threat there. There's no um, there's no like sense from the powers that be that they need to even listen to you. Like, you might be a disruption for a little while, but there needs to be more focus on on building alternatives, building robust institutions that can allow people to transition out of capitalist institutions. Because part of the issue is that you know protests only go so far when you are you know reliant on these institutions for your work, you know, for your housing, for all these different, for your food, all these different things. And so, community institutions and and food institutions and you know. Um, community defense institutions, all these things, um, workers, cooperatives and trade collectives and stuff needs to be developed. Trade syndicates needs to be developed. Um, in order to provide people with some sort of like foundation. So they are able to have some kind of backing, um, when they are fighting for a better world. Otherwise they're left to flounder for themselves, basically. Well, you have another video on uh, left unity, which I-, I found really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the whole left-right dichotomy is a product of French Revolution-era politics. But that was centuries ago. You know, people keep trying to crown together these incompatible ideologies. People keep trying to argue, oh, well, you know, left liberals or social democrats or democratic socialists or whatever, or, you know, progressives, they're all left, or they're center-left, or they're this left, and this ideology is more left than that ideology, and, you know, the compass, all these different things. 
this whole attempt to bring together all these quote-unquote left ideologies hasn't worked since, like, the first international. And I mean, nearly two centuries later, people are still trying to push this idea that status and anarchists have the same end goal, but a different means of getting there. As if that's not the most crucial component of organizing here now. That's not even getting into the history of how those collaborations have often ended in betrayal, or how the contributions of anarchists in, you know, these various revolutions around the world are completely erased so that, you know, like these Marxist Leninist types claim that, oh, the glorious Marxist-Leninist revolutions, we're the only ones who have made a successful revolution. When it's often the case that it's a whole, you know, mishmash of different ideologies and contributions that eventually, inevitably, get subsumed into the Marxist-Leninist state. I don't need to organize in any kind of, like, ideological monolith, um, but there are some fundamental differences that beget fundamental limitations on the extent of organizing possible. Like, yeah, you could protest with, like, other left ideologies, I guess, against, you know, the police or against, you know, anti-trans legislation or whatever the case may be. But if you're trying to, like, organize a community, um, a community union or a tenant union or whatever the case may be, and there are people in the group who subscribe to one political structure and one political philosophy when it comes to organizing and hierarchy and that kind of thing. And there's another um, group of people, contingent of people, who are against that. You know, eventually you're going to come to loggerheads and eventually, you know, there are people who want, who believe they need to guide the proletariat through the glorious enlightenment of the Vanguard Party and there are others who would believe in the ability of the people to organize themselves and to develop, you know, their own path to revolution. Um, and so, I mean, I go in more in depth in the Leftist Disunity video, so you can check that out, but yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying like you can't, yeah. you know, you can't like work with them to like feed people or, you know, you, you pull up at the local food nut bombs and, oh, there's an ML here, I guess I'm going to peace out or whatever, or you're going to start a fight. No, it's, I mean, you do what you, what you do what you need to do to help people, you know, but th- what I'm trying to say is that there are limitations to that, you know, there's, there's no way to go all the way without one position being compromised. Cause I mean, it really is a, a square peg in a round hole. One of the more recent videos that you had come out was on Especifismo. Yeah. Thank you. What, um, insights do you feel this tendency has for anarchists, uh, in terms of revolutionary action and organizing? Yeah, so, I mean, speaking of organizing and ideological coherence, right? Um, Especifismo is like a cousin of platformism and basically encourages anarchists to organize in theoretically tight-knit groups um, that can socially insert in larger social movements and influence them to maintain their autonomy and self-organization, proliferate anarchist ideas, and protect against cooptation. The specifist argument is basically that, you know, these social movements are already essentially self-organized. They already have, like, anarchic potential. Um, and I mean, that's the whole thing about anarchism, right? We're always moving more and more towards it, more and more. You know, after anarchist revolution, it's like, you're always moving towards more and more anarchism. So, you know, a specifist groups, they're not there to, like, act as some sort of secret cabal or secret vanguard party that's pulling the strings behind the scenes 
but they're basically there to help people, you know, um, advance their political understanding, you know, their political education, um, help them to develop organizing methods that are conducive to maintaining that sort of horizontal, self-organized, self-directed, um, anarchic way of, of, you know, operating social movements and really to, like I said, proliferate, proliferate anarchist ideas and protect against cooptation from, you know, like the state, from, from capitalists, you know, from like people trying to win the next election, um, from these, um, parties like, like, like these vanguard parties that want to spring up and claim a movement, that kind of thing. I find it so interesting, um, that there's a lot of parallels between what you're talking about, um, with that tendency and also with insurrectionary currents, which are very much interested in, you know, the ability of tactics and modes of struggle to reproduce themselves and spread and also in, you know, resisting recuperation. I feel like the tension there is that oftentimes, uh, people don't want to necessarily label themselves as anarchists to the wider population. Like that's not necessarily the, the issue at hand, you know, promoting or selling the ideological package of anarchism. Right. right. Um, and I, I find that a fascinating tension because I find there's a kind of interesting arguments in both camps. I think a lot of people are actually very, um, in my experience, at least they've been quite receptive to anarchist ideas, even if they have some initial questions and concerns. I don't always like initially say that it's anarchist ideas or that I am an anarchist, but you know, eventually it gets to that point, or I might say it up front, or whatever the case may be. Um, but honestly, the words we use, while they are important, I don't see them as the be all and end all. You know, if someone is subscribed to like 99% of anarchist ideas, but they don't call themselves an anarchist for one reason or another, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, cool. We can still work together. We still share similar values. You know, I don't need people to like, right political affiliation anarchist on some census or whatever just as long as like you know the basic ideas of free association of horizontalism of of you know um free disassociation um and the respecting of autonomy the respect for autonomy is you know realized in in the whole do you have any videos coming up that you want to talk about right i don't typically like to spoil upcoming videos too much um, but I do have, have one on, um, I do have an interesting one I would see on Solopunk coming up. Um, I have some others I have to prepare for on hierarchy and on the commons. And yeah, I'll just, I'll just leave those hints at that. Well, you already kind of, uh, brought this up a little bit, but for anyone that's listening that, you know, would want to kind of dive into, video or doing stuff on youtube what advice would you give them right i mean like i said the, the journey is going to look different for each person but like i said you know find a niche develop your voice reach your audience somewhere or another you know the different paths that i took to sort of promote and they you know they had the one two here and there um to sort of helped to bring people along but it really was algorithm-based luck that eventually did it for me. Um, and I would say, you know, like, try to get your quality up. 
you know. Um, unfortunately, people do judge a book by its cover, so you want your first impression to be a strong one. Well, one last big question uh, we wanted to post to you is, uh, in terms of media projects, what do you think that anarchists are not doing with those endeavors that we should start doing? What about the media landscape do we need to work on and build? Right. I mean, I kind of hinted to it earlier um, in this interview, but I'd say less focus on constant critique and more emphasis on strategies and tactics for change that don't revolve around just protest, you know? Like, quote-unquote, BreadTube, quote-unquote, left media has been around for a long time now. But if we are converting people, quote-unquote, <laughs> with a to create, like, this passive anti-capitalist, you know, market base for, you know, NordVPN or whatever to sell to, I don't think it's much more helpful, you know? I'm not saying that you have to, like, spend every video talking about step-by-step praxis guides and that kind of thing. Because, I mean, I don't focus exclusively on practice, praxis. But I do, do try to take the time to explain elements of praxis, you know, like consensus organizing, pillow blitzes, soul punk solutions, mutual aid, and to, of course, direct people to resources that go more in-depth. Because there are enough people who are in this vein that we should be seeing more change than we are seeing right now. Not to say that it isn't change happening all over the world, but, you know, a lot more could be done in that field. Anything else you'd like to add? All power to all the people. (laughs) Do you want to tell people where they can go to follow you? Right. So you can follow me on Twitter at underscore St. Drew, and you can find me on YouTube, youtube.com slash St. Well, no, it's not St. anymore. YouTube.com slash Andrewism. You just type in Andrewism on YouTube. I used to be St. Andrewism, but... I've decided that that name no longer um, suits my endeavors. So, yeah. And then also, <laughs> you're going to be, or you you are on the, you're working with Robert Evans on his show? Yes. Which is so huge. I mean, twice a, a month. Yeah. <laughs> twice a month I'm on It Could Happen Here, um, talking about whatever I feel to talk about.
Okay, we have a special guest here. Let's introduce them real quick. And in case people don't know, how can they check out your stuff online? My name is Lee, and I run the accounts um, on Instagram and Twitter, Butch Anarchy. Um, I do political analysis on a regular basis um, and also am stepping into writing some more longer form pieces on a regular basis as well. Um, I try to make uh, anarchist analysis on our political situations um, accessible to people who might not be as familiar with the terms. And uh, I have a special focus on uh, both disability justice and queer and trans justice as well as um, right now I have a special focus on um, domestic violence and how uh, domestic violence and state oppression are part of the same ideology of power and control. Um, but in general, I talk about a lot of things uh, r- regarding uh, our political landscape. And you can find me, like I said, at Butch Anarchy uh, on Twitter and Instagram. We have a lot to talk about today. Obviously, there is so much going on in the streets. The Supreme Court has reversed the Roe versus Wade decision, uh, which has triggered states across the country to enact bans on reproductive freedom. So where do we want to start? It makes sense to start <clears throat> off with sort of what even happened, right? Um, and what does it mean? Because I think there's a lot of it's a bit of a lack of clarity about that, I think, um, and specifically about how uneven that is in different parts of the country. Um, I think that probably makes sense to start there. You know, the Supreme Court issued a ruling um, in a case which originally was supposed to be about the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban. Um, that law had been passed, I think, two years ago, and it had kind of been working its way through the courts. Um but the attorney general of the state of Mississippi did something which, I mean, it's not entirely unheard of, um, but it's definitely not super common. Uh, and that is that they asked for a ruling on a second legal question. Now, generally, when that happens, the Supreme Court can make a decision, take that question up or not. And in this situation, they chose to take that question up. I mean, I don't think any of us should have any illusions like. They were definitely communicating behind the scenes, like the choreography of that was planned for sure. Um, but nevertheless, they issued this ruling and the ruling sort of hinges on uh, exactly the same thing that the draft opinion hinged on, which we had talked about at the time, but I think bears repeating. Um, it hinges on uh, a legal theory called constitutional originalism. And the idea is that there are two standards which laws can be evaluated based on. The first is the Constitution and all of its amendments. Now, they read that in a literalist sense, meaning that uh, if it's not declared as a right in the Constitution, according to very conservative originalists, then it's just it, it's just not a thing. It's just not a right, except, and this is the second standard, if it was common cultural practice of the time. So if people did it in the late 18th century, then it's cool. Now, (laughs) what's absurd about that outside of everything um, is, you know, the idea that a group of people is going to use police violence to force us to live in a way that people lived centuries ago um, is something that very generally when ISIS is doing that (laughs) or the Taliban is doing that, we're sitting there saying, oh, that's horrible. Um, 
but here apparently the same people that will you know rightly condemn the Taliban for doing something like this uh, are now doing it here, right? And constitutional originalism assumes that that's a valid way to have to evaluate anything, and so the ruling becomes really strange at this point. We were kind of talking a little bit about this before we started recording, but um, and maybe we can dive into this a little bit uh, in a second, but. The ruling makes the argument that abortion was not a common cultural practice in the late 18th century. Benjamin Franklin gave instructions on how to do abortions um, in almanacs, in a number of different republications that he did, because it was really common to sort of take a series of books and like smash them together and republish like five books in one bound volume or something. And he would publish books, which very openly talked about how to engage in abortions at home. And it was normal healthcare practice. Right. It, there was no moral judgment around the, the discussion in those texts at all. It, it was very matter of fact, you know, this is how one does this sort of form of healthcare. Um, now in the ruling, they entirely deny that that history exists. And this creates a really dangerous precedent. Um, cause now all they have to do the Supreme Court to just decide that people can't do something or to decide that police force should be mobilized to prevent them from doing something is to point out that in the Constitution, it's not specifically named as a right and then come up with literally any explanation of history, regardless of how accurate it is. And if you can get a majority of people on the Supreme Court to agree with it, that whatever random invalid version of history becomes law. Right. This is where Clarence Thomas is now talking about, you know, rolling like gay marriage back and reinstituting sodomy laws and things like this. Um, is that he'll just argue, well, uh, people who are identified as being of the same sex did not get married in the 18th century. So therefore they shouldn't get married today. Right. Um, it, it functionally allows conservative justices the ability to sort of engage in a sort of informal theocratic rule, um, by just engaging in, you know, rank, vulgar historical revisionism, essentially. Um, what the ruling means, ultimately, is that it sort of, it eliminates the guarantee of the right to access for abortion care in the United States. So, before this ruling, every state had to allow access to abortion care. Now, some states made it really difficult there are some states like I think it was Mississippi where there was a single clinic in the entire state. And they've done this in a number of ways. They sort of put, you know, egregious, over the top sort of health inspection regulations on just abortion clinics, like way more so than a normal doctor's office um, in the state where, you know, I some of my friends live. They were trying to force all fetal remains to get cremated at the expense of the clinic, which costs hundreds if not thousands of dollars per abortion, more than the actual procedure costs. Um, and so they put these kind of egregious over-the-top limitations there to sort of make it difficult to access, but they weren't allowed to prevent access. Now they're allowed to prevent access. Now what that means, I think, is up for a lot. There's going to be a lot of legal fights that happen at this, at this point. But what we do know is that a number of states have already had sort of trigger laws go into effect, there's a number of states, I think two states currently, where trigger laws went into effect and then got blocked by the court. Um, and then there are other states in which laws immediately got passed or injunctions that were preventing the 
enforcement of a law were sort of removed. Um, and so I know in the state of Ohio, for example, uh, the six week abortion ban went into effect literally the day of the ruling. Um, because right away, the state attorney general for the state of Ohio filed to remove the injunction against the enforcement of that law, which had been under injunction for around a year. Um, and just like that, all of a sudden, um, the entirety of how people access abortion care in Ohio has changed literally in 10 minutes after the ruling. Um, that's sort of the stakes that we're looking at right now. Yeah, and I think the general question that we have to address as anarchists trying to respond to this moment, too, is um, finding out how we can do so effectively and, like, provide the actual, like, resources for people to access the care that they need. And I see a lot of people kind of asking these questions of, like, what are the next steps um, that don't involve um, basically capitulating, capitulating to the idea that the only thing that we can do is march around performatively and then vote and hope that things can become different, even though uh, the major problem in this specific situation is an unelectable court. Um, and I see a lot of people trying to reckon with like what the response is, what, what the response should be um, something that is so, uh, so total uh, over so much of the country right now. Yeah, just to kind of open it up in a million different directions, you know, before we were recording, we were talking about this editorial that was on uh, Newsweek that I had read where the author was essentially saying, like, they were going to move out of the country, that there was nothing really that could be done at this point, that, you know, sort of the liberal institutions of democratic society have collapsed, where, I mean, I would argue that they're working, you know, very well as they're intended to do, you know. It's going down to it up talking about how after the Civil War, when Reconstruction started, there was a Civil Rights Act that was passed by what were known then as the Radical Republicans, so essentially the abolitionist wing of the Republican Party. And in many people's eyes, that went farther than the Civil Rights Acts that were passed in the 1960s, but that was actually uh, struck down by the Supreme Court in 1883. And that set the stage for things like Plessy versus Ferguson that basically entombed the South and U.S. society in these Jim Crow laws, which argued literally that you could have, quote, separate but equal U.S. societies for different races. And that stayed on the books until, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, which came down in uh 1957 and then the civil rights act was passed and then there were further acts that were passed but those were passed of course under the ascension of the civil rights movement and extreme massive urban riots and rebellions so it literally took the united states 100 years to catch up in terms of civil rights legislation to where it was after the civil war which when you think about it it just shows how this idea that American society is just this natural progression of extending more freedoms and more rights to people and we're just sort of waltzing into this world in which everyone is enfranchised and everyone can can pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, it's a, it's a total joke. 
I mean, these are institutions of domination that are designed to enact police measures on people's lives to take away freedoms if they want to. And that's exactly what we're seeing. I think what's interesting is that this is, you know, just such a punch in the face to so many people. So many people, I think, never thought that they would see something like this, especially a lot of, I mean, let's just state it plainly, a lot of white people never thought that this would happen, especially to them. I think this is such a shock. So I, I think one of the big questions is, is like sort of as we've been talking about, like how do we as anarchists approach this situation that sort of takes the veil off of the absurd idea that we can vote our way out of this, but also doesn't leave people so disheartened that they're literally saying the only way out of this is to leave the country. Yeah, I think I think there's sort of two directions that we have to really kind of push the discussion. Um, and the first sort of dovetails off what you're talking about. Um, we have to really discuss what happened here because it wasn't that some Supreme Court justices decided they didn't like abortion, right? That the question of one's ethical position on abortion and the question of the state imposition of a ban on abortion are different questions. And it is philosophically entirely possible for someone to be personally against abortion and also be pro other people making different decisions, right? That really what happened here is that the ability of a significant portion of the American population to make basic decisions over their own bodies and healthcare um, has now been put within the purview of policing. And those bodily choices are now the purview of law. And so we have to think about what that means, right? And we have to think about what that means in a broader context. So a lot of this discussion that we've been having has been around, you know, how do we start to talk about things like reproductive justice beyond just the question of abortion, right? And what does that look like, right? Not just as a cultural practice or as an autonomy practice, but as a political practice, um, and part of that discourse really centers on this notion of autonomy and bodily autonomy very specifically. And so we end up with a situation in which we sort of have a mask off moment, right, in which the mask gets torn off, that we can see really clearly in this moment what's happening. And in that sort of retreat into policing, right? And every single thing a judge does is a police order. I mean, we can't separate those things from one another. What they did was they literally ordered the police to impose their moral will on other people, right? Now, every law does that. Every single law does that. And right now, there's a lot of people in America that are very justifiably very upset that they don't have control over, you know, this one very specific part of their lives. But the way that they're talking about it, and they're talking about, you know, we need bodily autonomy, we need autonomy, we need to be able to make decisions. When those same people then are also statists, when they're liberals, when they're, you know, socialisty types or whatever, they're sort of not understanding the implication of their own argument. Because the implication of the argument <laughs> is that people should be able to make choices over basic elements of their life, right? The entire existence of the state and our existence as citizens within that means that our existence is mediated through that form, necessarily, right? That we do not get the choice to be included within the terrain of policing. We are included within the terrain of policing, and we can't escape that, 
on that level just alone, the existence of policing fundamentally prevents us from having the very autonomy that people are sort of starting to demand right now. And that kind of leads to the second thing I think it's important for us to talk about, which is the failures of liberal activism in this context, right? That for the last most oh, better part of 50 years, right? Um, so much of this struggle had been pushed off the streets and had been pushed into ballot boxes and had been pushed into courts. And the argument always was, yeah, well, if you just fund Planned Parenthood when your state passes some egregious anti-choice law, then Planned Parenthood's going to work with the ACLU and this money is going to go into the court case, blah, blah. That strategy has one very basic effect when it comes to social movements, and that is that it radically decelerates everything. It completely disempowers the vast majority of participants and sort of puts them in this position of being sort of passive. Right. That the best you can do is donate money, maybe make some phone calls, maybe run a fundraiser. And if you're really dedicated, you go work at a clinic. Right. But by and large, most of the discourse around activity in, you know, what's become called the pro-choice movement was really grounded in these radically disempowering forms of action. Right. Not entirely, but largely. And it's that part of that movement that just failed. Right. It's the part of that movement which tried to force everything into the courts. It's the part of that movement that tried to force everything into ballot boxes that just radically failed. And it failed for a very basic reason. It tried to engage the state on a terrain where the state has advantage. And not just advantage, has total hegemony. So in a context in which you're trying to argue that the state should not be imposing its own sovereign will on people, which is what states are, in a court run by that same state, the best that we can ever hope for is some sort of tacit commitment of the state to self-limit its own power. But as we have all experienced since September 11th, since the kind of emergence of a pseudo-state of emergency in the United States, um, it's pretty easy for all of those sort of tacit commitments to just disappear. Because at the end of the day, the state is still a structure fundamentally at its core of policing and nothing else, right? And so what happened here is that the state decided to declare sovereignty over this decision, just as they declare sovereignty over the entire rest of the conditions of our existence, right? And I think we need to be able to talk about this sort of holistically, comprehensively, um, not just as something which has to do with abortion, although that's incredibly important, but something which extends far beyond that and something which the liberal pro-choice movement was unable to really internalize or act on. Yeah, going just off of that about like what the uh, like the criminalization of abortion connects to, um, I think it's we can look at it as an just another place, another focus where uh, many different issues that we're struggling against right now are converging um, because it's all essentially the same issue of state supremacy um, and the ability for people in power to, to dictate what our lives look like and like what we do with our bodies and. I think that, like, I can see the convergence of, um, the white supremacist conspiracy theories of, like, the greater replacement, which has been a core feature of the anti-abortion movement for its entire history, including its inception, um, in the mid-19th century when doctor, white doctors basically worked to stoke fears of essentially non-whites replacing white people, and then also used it as a way to push women, and especially black and indigenous women, out of healthcare altogether, um, like, specifically midwives, who had a lot of control over that part of life. And, uh, 
so like that is a part where like the white supremacist project is converging on this. And then of course it's not just about reproductive health, but it's also, I think, connected to, um, the masses of attack on trans, uh, rights and trans people and our ability to dictate what our bodies are going to look like and what we're going to do with them. Um, and I even would extend that to, uh, the backlash against survivors of domestic violence that we've seen, like, kind of typified by the coverage, um, and general reaction to, like, the Depp Heard trial. Um, it's kind of this conglomeration of that, that those who benefit from patriarchy, and of course, patriarchy is part of what is one of the many systems that connects the state together into a whole. Um, they're seeking to, I feel like, reconstitute and reinforce um, the rigid gender binary uh, and with it, the gender hierarchy and all the repressive gender roles that go with it. Because um, patriarchy requires a strict adherence to the ideology of gender binary and that like that gender binary um, dictates essential, like biologically essential roles with it um, that are irrevocably assigned that one cannot escape from. And that those who are assigned to the subservient gender must submit themselves as objects to have their reproductive care legislated and um, have their voices disregarded when they're experiencing violence. And similarly, those who resist the gender assignment itself um, are like locked on to be eradicated, uh, like all of the different legislations going around to essentially erase trans people, I think are, is not disconnected from this, but it's in fact this one coherent struggle ag- against systems of domination. Uh, and yeah, I think that the liberal mo- model has definitely failed us simply because we can say that abortion has been legal for 49 years. And even if uh, I've been trying to talk uh, to uh, folks about how, like, even if their rosiest ideal of how this could turn around and just somehow be all okay without anyone's working on it, even if that were the case, there's nothing, while there is state power, there's nothing to protect us from the same thing happening again, because the state that isn't accountable to us never has been. It's not for that. It's for domination and control and extraction. And so to place hopes that maybe we can manipulate and maneuver the state enough to grant us again, like grant us rights also means that it can continue to withhold them and continue to control them. And that's not, I don't, that's not a viable path for sustainable access to the ability to control our own lives and our own bodies. So many good points there. That was awesome. I guess just to add just a little bit onto that, I think uh, the other aspect of that is what we're seeing from the far right, you know, as we're seeing this uh, rising gender fascist legislation sweep across the U.S., with everything from, you know, what we've been talking about in terms of reproductive freedom, but also all the attacks on, uh, trans people, um, and beyond. We're also seeing this intense ratcheting up of, you know, really violent and genocidal rhetoric in terms of, you know, labeling people groomers. Like just in the last couple of days, we saw in Reno, a group of proud boys had another like very small minuscule protest outside of uh, drag queen story hour, which is literally just people reading stories to kids. And they've turned into this whole uh, conspiracy about groomers sexualizing children. And there was a, one of the proud boys uh, took a gun out and tried to enter into the library and people, you know, freaked. And it was a, it was a big deal. And luckily no one was hurt. 
Um, also, there was some white supremacists that showed up outside of a pride celebration in California, somewhere outside of Sacramento, and held banners about groomers and protect, uh, you know, uh, white children and so on. So we're seeing like an escalation of this rhetoric at the same time as we're seeing uh, this legislation come down. And I think those two are are definitely wed to each other. I mean, just like we saw like throughout history, like especially like an instance like with Reconstruction. I mean, as we saw the rise of things like the KKK and also in in many ways, things like the White Citizen Councils, which pushed for local legislation and sought to back Jim Crow. We also saw the state doing, you know, legal things and passing laws. So, I mean, those two are explicitly wed to each other. The extra legal violence of the fascist far right and what the state is doing in terms of police orders and passing laws. But maybe just to turn the, the conversation uh, once again, maybe we can talk about in the big picture what's actually going to happen next. So all these trigger bans are happening. What does that mean for people that can still like get uh, the morning after pill or abortion pill through the mail? Also, we're seeing things like the governor of California, Oregon, Washington saying like, hey, we're standing up for reproductive freedom. You can still come here. Are we going to see extradition laws be put into place? Are we going to see people going after those that go to other states to get abortions? And also, as many people point out, we're entering into a period, if that's the case, this is very much a scenario like the Civil War in which you have states that are doing this over here and states that are doing that, and they have laws essentially that are aimed at attacking each other or that are in conflict. So I'm curious what we all think about that. Uh, I think it really wildly depends on where you are. So let's take, I think it was Oklahoma. I think it was Oklahoma. Passed the law today, um, which allows private people it's based on the Texas law. It allows private people to civilly sue anybody that is facilitating anyone from the state of Oklahoma getting an abortion anywhere. So if someone from Oklahoma gets in a car and drives to Illinois and gets an abortion in Chicago, under that law, if their next door neighbor knows that that happened, they could sue them and the person who gave them a ride. Now, who knows whether that's going to hold up in court? We're not sure yet, because there really isn't... Within the American political system, the idea of states and the power of states is a really complicated sort of concept um, because of its sort of shifting relationship to the autonomy of state governments, right? And so, technically, every state government is autonomous of other state governments, right? So under that logic, it would be impossible for me as, say, the governor of Oklahoma to say that you can't do something in Missouri because Missouri is a completely different sovereign space under kind of, you know, the foundations of American political theory. Um, who knows whether that's going to hold up in the courts, though? Right. I mean, there was this notion that, again, this is one of these things liberals are saying now, which is really frustrating to me, but. Um, there's this, this narrative of the courts become irreparably political now. It, what was it always? When it was passing, when it was, you know, pushing forward rulings 
that were undermining civil rights. What was that? That was politics too, right? And so who knows how the courts are going to rule? I mean, one of the things that this is pointing out is the arbitrariness of judgment, right? And how judges have this power based on this notion of rational legal interpretation that they can sort of interpret laws in objective, absolute ways. And in doing so, aren't subject to the same sort of whimsicalness of an irrational, normal voter or whatever. I mean, this is James Madison, sort of like Madisonian political theory. But under that sort of concept, courts and police derive their legitimacy from the idea that they are not arbitrary that they somehow act outside of their own existential particularity and take on this kind of weird position of somehow being a objective agent while also still being an autonomous person that makes decisions. It doesn't make any sense philosophically. But the point is, is that it also doesn't make any sense practically. The reality is, is that judges make decisions based on their own understanding of the world. And that is by definition arbitrary. Right. So this arbitrariness of judgment sort of element, I think we have to really start to understand we're talking about what's going to happen next, because the reality is, is that laws are no protection. You know, we have this weird idea in the United States that the state protects us from itself, literally. Right. That's what the Bill of Rights is about, that the state's going to guarantee your freedom against itself. Right. Literally, it, it again does not make a lot of sense from a sort of, you know, contemporary perspective. Um, so it could be that judges in these states just kind of rule however they want to, and there's really nothing stopping them from doing that, um, especially right now. And so there could be situations. I mean, okay, let me put it this way. There will be test cases where somebody gets arrested for driving someone to another state to get an abortion. There will definitely be test cases where someone gets arrested for giving out abortion pills, right? I will promise that. I would put money on that. Some state somewhere, probably a state like Texas, is going to push that line. Now, what happens when that happens is anyone's guess. But for those that are really having serious conversations about how to continue providing support for those seeking abortions in states where that's not legal, um, a lot of focus needs to be put on operational security because the reality is, is that I think there's a lot of fear out there and it's not unjustified, right? Like it's, I want to be clear about that. It's not unjustified fear, but there's a lot of fear that governments, state governments are going to go after individual patients that seek out abortion care. And that might happen, but it's a lot more likely just given, you know, resource considerations, given sort of strategic effectiveness, it's a lot more likely that they're going to go after the people who are helping provide the services. Right. And so for all of you out there that are thinking about doing that, um, you can't rely on the courts to be your protection because they're not going to be. And if what happened with Roe v. Wade doesn't convince you of that, I'll promise you four or five other court actions that are about to happen in the next couple of months whether at a state or federal level, will. And so we can't rely on the idea that we have rights, obviously, because rights are fiction, right? States can just take them away. Um, we can't rely on that concept, that we have to start to really think about how do we build 
resilient infrastructure to allow for people to still have access to necessary healthcare, right? And it's sad that we have to talk about clandestinity in relation to that, but that is sort of the reality that we might start to face in certain parts of the United States, right? Um, and it's not one of these situations where it makes sense for those of us that live in places like that, where there are really egregious restrictions, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to be moving to places where those restrictions don't exist. It makes a lot of sense for us to be helping people still get access. And that's dangerous. Like our world just changed really drastically, right? And all of a sudden putting someone in a car and driving them to upstate New York or something, depending on the state and the judge and the court, could be a prosecutable offense, depending on where you are in the United States, right? And so it's sort of, it becomes something that almost exists in the same way that, say, like, state-level gun laws exist, right? Where they're really, really, really different between states. And judges sort of interpret things the way that they interpret them. Um, and it it's very confusing. And it feels very arbitrary. And it's really paradoxical a lot of the time. Um and this is why there's whole law firms that just do Second Amendment law, because it really doesn't make a lot of sense. There's no coherence to it. This is the world we're entering now when it comes to healthcare, right? Um, we're entering a world in which healthcare is policed, right? Which isn't new, but is policed in this really over-the-top egregious way, um, including the policing of the assistance of helping other people gain access to healthcare. Um, the only thing that I can think of is, like this in the United States is, and it's nothing on the same scale, uh, but doctors getting arrested for helping cancer patients uh, commit assisted suicide, for example. Um, in states where that is very illegal, especially in the 90s, there were a lot of, of states which were prosecuting doctors for this, uh, Jack Kevorkian being the kind of, uh, sort of poster child doctor of this. But uh, what they were doing is they were going after the doctors and they were going after the people that were providing the drugs to the doctors. They weren't going after the patients. I have a feeling that we're going to see something very similar. Um, and so we have to prepare for that reality, especially as, you know, if we're of the type that is in a position to help people still gain access to necessary healthcare, even if we live in a place where that's uh, not available. And even going after specifically the, the people who, are providing the services or providing the care, um, like what, to connect it to the trans, uh, stuff going on as well. It's a similar dynamic of the, the do- doctors that are providing, uh, doc- uh, doctors who are providing trans affirming, um, care to youth and increasingly even to adults are the ones that are being targeted more than like the individual, um, patients of these people because um, I see it as kind of a administration, re- administrative replacement, I guess, is that if you get people out of the positions of power, um, like doctors, um, or, or either out of positions of power or too afraid to use their power in line with their values, then you, then people ha- have nowhere else to go. Um, and so I think along with recognizing that p- stepping into the position of care, whether or not you are a like medical practitioner or where you are trying to drive your friend across state lines or um, any number of uh, supporting work that can happen is yeah to recognize that uh, the state wants to target people who are wanting to step into those roles because it's their ultimate goal in terms of seeking out power and control over 
everyone. Um, they want people to feel like there's no help for them. And they also want people to feel like it's too dangerous to help and to risk. Um, so uh, operational security is definitely, a, I second that, um, is a absolute must, I think, going forward. It's interesting that sort of the commonality in a lot of the stuff that we're facing today is this regime of austerity, people being forced to cope with less, you know, the rising of the cost of everything from fuel to food to rent, uh, wages paying less, and also this repressive apparatus just becoming more and more apparent throughout society. And this is at play also within this. I mean, think about just how much more precarious people's lives are going to be. I mean, not only in terms of potentially risking their life if they're, they have to like seek out some, you know, extra legal uh, abortion that's not safe. Um, but also in terms, you know, if they are forced to literally, you know, carry a child and then, you know, have to deal with that if they're not in a position to really do that, you know, <laughs> as capitalism is making it more and more expensive and harder and harder to live, and on top of that, worrying about the legal ramifications if you do you know, seek out reproductive health care. I think that's one thing that we should also be thinking about in terms of like how to tie all these struggles together. You know, I guess the, the next thing I wanted to bring up to the group is just it's so ironic that we're talking again about like, you know, how to think about how to keep people safe and, and the state coming after people because we're literally talking about something that is the vast majority of the population, you know, supports access to abortion i'm sure like among the 40 and under crowd it's it's even higher than the national average before recording we're talking about a new uh poll that just came out where it said like you know two-thirds of americans don't support the ban and that you know half of the u.s is strongly opposed you can hardly find any issue in which you know that has that much uh resentment and anger other than the fact that people don't like Trump and they don't like Biden. That seems to be the, and people like weed. Those are like the, mm -hmm. the things that people can agree on. Uh, people were saying before we started recording. So I'm just curious, like, how does that factor into it? The fact that, I mean, this is like a widespread thing that, that most people are not on board for. I'm sure most young people are even more so not on board for this. And how does that impact our organizing, how we respond? Yeah, I mean, I think that this gets back into what we were talking about with the liberal elements of the pro-choice movement, right? How did we get here? And and we've been talking about this on the show for a while, but how did we end up in a situation in which a political party with a minority of support is able to call off shots, right? Um, because that's where we are. And whether or not we like the Democrats, we have to sort of acknowledge that uh, there are more Democrats than there are Republicans in the United States, even in quote Republican states, right? In a lot of, in a lot of cases. And so we can see this in say really basic sort of indicators. For example, um, the Senate, right? If you look at total vote totals, Democrats far out, like outpace Republicans in total votes nationally for Senate races. The Senate is also the body that gets to decide who gets to go on the Supreme Court. And so the 17 something million people that live in New York state get the same amount of say in what happens on the Supreme Court as the, you know, five or 600,000 people that live in Wyoming. Right. And because of that, the idea that America is, quote, a democracy um, is, is just patently absurd on its face. 
right? Not even on this level of being like states can never be democratic, which fine, yes, true. Um, or not even on this level of even rejecting the term democracy because there's a lot of issues with that term. But literally in the, the language of American politics, the idea of democracy is grounded in the notion of majority rule. That is not what is happening right now. And it's not happening in a way that conforms with all the legal structures of the American state. And in fact, is determinative of the legal structures of the American state. Right. The idea that the state is anything other than um, a sort of constellation of logistics in which will is imposed. Um, is absurd, right? The notion that states somehow function, quote, democratically, even if they're majoritarian, is sort of absurd. But we can't even claim that. We don't even have to go that far down the rabbit hole to really talk about um, the absurdity of the notion that America functions as something that anyone could call a democracy, right? That this core idea of, of American identity um, these sorts of events show to be uh, an absurd fiction and a cruel one at that, right? Um, because it's not only that we have decided within the United States that whatever this is counts as democracy, but have also convinced other people around the world of that as well, right? Um, that tragedy in itself should demonstrate everything that we need to demonstrate about why the court and ballot box strategy in this case is not worthwhile. Um, that we're entering, we enter into the space in which um, we sort of can't have any leverage, right? In which decisions can just be switched and overturned and in which the very basic ideas of American politics themselves don't even function. So even if you want to be loyal to those concepts, courts and, you know, the ballot box are not the place to do that. Um, and what that means is that we all have to fundamentally change the way and terms of the discussion as it's being approached currently. Um, and I see a lot of that happening, right? So one of the things that's been hopeful about these last series of days have been that people are going kind of hard. You know, they're shutting down highways, they're shutting down bridges, they're blocking traffic. Um and often are doing that in ways which are grounded in autonomous action and decentralization um, and people hitting the streets and making their own decisions in organic ways. Um, and we can see the power of that, that tactic set, right? But that tactic set also expresses something else that's really relevant here. And that is the actual idea of autonomy, right? That if we are going to be talking about bodily autonomy, if we're going to be talking about that in relation to the state, then the ways that we act also have to manifest in that way, right? We can't be talking about bodily autonomy and then just encourage everyone to go sign up and vote and go to the ballot box. If we're going to talk about bodily autonomy, we have to actually talk about having power over our lives. If we're going to talk about that, we have to talk about direct action. If we're going to talk about that, well, groups like the PSL are not necessarily, well, they're not at all um, compatible with an idea of bodily autonomy, right? especially when they protest police everybody. And so we have to start to really see what's happening here now and start to think about how that realigns some of the political conditions that we're in. Like this is a moment in which I think kind of like the uprising, 
in which there will be a portion of liberals that are changed forever by by these events in in a good way right and there will be many that aren't but every single time something like this happens um we end up in a situation of increasingly acute political conflict i think the big question that um is getting asked and it's the right question is Cool, we're out in the streets, we're doing this stuff, we're blocking highways, we're blocking bridges. What's the objective? Right? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to achieve? How are we trying to respond to this? Are we trying to respond to this? And how are we doing that in a way which is actually addressing the core problem here? Which again, is not just about abortion, but it's about the relationship of the state to bodily autonomy, fundamentally. And kind of going to the question of uh, if there's something positive to be seen in the fact that so many people strongly actually support access to abortion, um, thinking back to um, the U.S. counterinsurgency manual, um, basically they state that a huge threat to counterinsurgents uh, in suppressing insurgents and a strength for insurgents is that um, the insurgents uh, have the ability generally to disappear into and then also be protected by um, the general population. And that that's a really, that's a really difficult thing for the state to deal with is not being able to locate individual actors. And that's why also um, more hierarchical centralized power organizations are much easier for the state to counter because they can see them and name them and depose them. Um, and I think that there's something to be said for um, understanding that our political situation is such that even a lot of liberals, like I, I was watching, I think it was, I think it was on CNN, but there was just some liberal broadcasters being like, and here's um, the things that you should do to not be um, tracked by the state if you want to get an abortion. And the fact that that was being talked about on like a liberal uh, news show was kind of just striking to me that they, the way that they were just like so and this is not all of them there are plenty of liberals that are like please don't break the law it'll hurt our feelings but there are more than I've seen in a bit who are talking about like and sharing these different ways of essentially uh, evading capture by the state and also accessing abortion and I think that there that there's a lot of potential in there to not only have um, some support to, to operations of building um, alternative infrastructure and having that infrastructure be supported by a lot of people who genuinely genuinely want to be involved and help people get access. Um, but also it seems like it could be as dark a moment as it is also a potentially radicalizing moment of like, do you like show, like, do you see what the Democrats are doing slash just not doing in this? Like, and I think a lot of people do, but I think more and more people do see it and do see that the options for action um, are increasingly limited by the state uh, and that the idea that once political duties are essentially discharged to the second that we uh, submit a ballot into a ballot box um, doesn't isn't cutting it for a lot of people. And I'm, I'm hopeful, at least, that that may continue and especially in working to build alternative networks of care outside of state power and control um, might even expand those possibilities too. You're listening to it's going down part of the channel zero anarchist podcast network. Follow us online at it's going and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. 
If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. It definitely seems like the pendulum has shifted, and whereas a lot of autonomous and anarchist formations in the, during the Trump years were really in ascension and able to build coalitions and, like, for instance, like, have, like, massive anti-fascist demos and be able to kind of bring people into the organizing that normally maybe wouldn't work together. It seems like in a lot of ways that's been swooped, to use the term that everybody uses on Twitter by uh, a lot of groups like the PSL, whatever uh, front group the RCP is using this week. I think now it's uh, Rise Up for Abortion Rights. Uh, and shout out, there's actually a really interesting uh, article people have written, critical of that group uh, from New York that people put out if you want to check that out. Um, also, socialist organizers, those seem to be the big ones, that they've really kind of put themselves in the front of this thing organizing a lot of different protests and response and it feels like a lot of these groups just like they did about a month ago when this first came out in politico just really run things into the ground they try to pick up a a few folks to get involved in their group and they kind of go back to square one or they'll just try to keep doing the same thing like refuse fascism which was the last group that the rcp had a front group for i mean they were famous for doing that just holding basically the same action again and again just literally marching in circles yelling at people about baba vacan and just people kind of fall out and get disinterested and there's sort of this alluding to like we're going to protest every night or we're going to occupy or this or that but there's really no direct action involved just sort of you know marching in circles literally and i think we're going to have to sort of work at and really push to like create space to try to get people to sit down and talk about and think about what would disruptive collect action look like. I don't think if we're just going to like hope that it manifests in the streets, I mean, by the time you listen to it, people may have already left the streets. I'm sure there'll be more protests coming up, but that kind of initial sort of wave may have already died down by the time this even comes out, uh, which is sad because like, other people were saying, I mean, we haven't even seen the last of this next wave of legislation that's coming. And of course, they want to attack gay marriage, you know, so-called anti-sodomy laws, uh, anything that has to do with the right to privacy. Um, so I think we're going to have to really work at uh, building those coalitions, creating those spaces that would allow people to sort of have the relationships that would get folks on the street um, and take action in a collective and direct way. I think with the forces that are there right now, there's a lot of people that have a lot of vested interest in sort of keeping things calm, but also having this sort of air of militancy that people are used to, especially after the uprising. I'm just now reading a report from Left Coast Right Watch that talks about, in several instances, people getting like shouted down by different protest organizers from different bureaucratic groups or communist parties telling them, you know, don't flip off the cops or, you know, don't climb on a mailbox or just small things like that. I mean, those, those sort of like literally counterinsurgency actions at protests, a lot of us have seen over the years. But I mean, those things really signal that if they don't want that, that thing to happen, 
they're not going to allow some sort of mass popular upsurge to build. And I think we've got to create the spaces and the relationships and, and help, um, you know, push those that will allow the opposite to happen. And I think this is a moment where we can start to really um, explore different kinds of spaces for action, right? So um, you know, generally the response in the U.S. when something like this happens is to, like, go protest stuff, right? Like, grab a sign, go out in the streets. Like, that's great. Fine. Cool. Do that. By all means, please. And definitely block stuff if you have the, the opportunity to. Um, like disrupt things as much as possible, but we have to all recognize, and I think all of us do, and a lot of the people that we talk to recognize that that in itself isn't sufficient, right? Um, the uprising in 2020 was different in that it was explosive. And that explosiveness led to an organicism in the way that people operated, right? Um, that people sort of operated in small groups. The big organizations didn't really have a lot of power or pull in the same way that they had in the past. And, you know, people were sort of experimenting with different forms of action. We're in another moment like that. The big organizations don't know what they're doing at this point. They're lost. They're flailing. Groups like the PSL, the best they can offer is, hey, everyone, let's show up and we're going to march around in a square in downtown of some city that's not Washington, D.C. And then next week we're going to do it again. Then, then we're going to do it again, and then we'll, then we'll do it again, and then maybe, maybe, maybe we'll do it again, and it just goes on and on and on, and that's okay if that's your jam, but this is one of these situations in which other forms of action are called for, in which we need to really think about how, what does direct action look like outside of the context of protests, right? We're seeing various forms of that happening right now in relation to this. Um, but how do we start to think of, uh, action in this context, not necessarily even just as a response to the state, right? But as this attempt to build something else in the context of trying to help, you know, maintain access to abortion care, that there's this whole world now that has opened up in which, um, people like us who, you know, generally, um, operate sort of in parallel to or, or slightly differently from a lot of the other people that we tend to organize with. Um, now all of a sudden have a really, really critical skill set, which is that a lot of anarchists in the U.S. are not all of us, unfortunately, but a lot of us are pretty good at operational security. We're pretty good at vetting structures and we're pretty good at figuring out how to do action without everyone having to know each other's names and stuff. And we know how to do these things. We know how to facilitate the, that kind of activity because anarchists have been doing it in the United States for over a hundred years. Right. And we have skills that are right now really, really critical for things that are happening. And I worry that if we put all of our energy and capacity into marching around, we're going to miss something that might be potentially more impactful. Um, and so this is, again, this is a moment I, I talked about this a lot on this show, but I think this is one, again, one of these moments where um, a reevaluation of what our assumptions of action are is necessary um, because the condition has changed and the train has changed very dramatically all of a sudden. 
Yeah, I think it definitely requires uh, a little bit of a loosening, loosening of the death grip that a lot of people, even radical people, still have on like the the logic of electoralism of like that change can happen if just enough people vote with their bodies by showing up in the street for this amount of time and then go home. And yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not reducing all the actions, uh, all the protest actions to that. Um, there are plenty that I think that are genuinely disruptive. Um, but I think that a lot of us, uh, in Portland, though I'm, I'm no longer in Portland, but in 2020 I was, and we were, a lot of us were kind of trying to figure out like the, how to break free from the like, show up and conf- be in conflict with police in like when in their most empowered place and then get beat up and run around the streets and break some windows and then go home and repeat. And like that, there was a lot of really empowering and cool work that also happened there, but the, the definite, there's a lot of burnout too that happened with that like cycle of just kind of showing up and then going home and then showing up and going home. And I think that there is definitely something to be said about kind of, trying to pry ourselves away from um, that, that logic that I think is still embedded in even a lot of anarchists too, of the idea that like, it's just that the, the numbers who are the protests that signify um, a job well done rather than like recognizing that our energy is precious and that there are so many things for us to do and like how conceptualizing with each other, like how we can use the energy that we have in ways that, um, cause either genuine disruptions to the operations of the state or um like and i think there's so many rich opportunities in this specific subject of reproductive health and justice is like how can we can provide those alternate networks of care that um can exist on their own and that are also not um vulnerable to be being either taken out by or um co-opted by the state what does it mean for so many people to be questioning just the democratic state right now and and also the democrats as well and just america as a system in general and what does it mean to intervene in that and we were sort of talking about what sort of things you know would make people feel empowered and what would just make them feel bummed out and just kind of like resign to whatever's going to happen but I'm just kind of curious, you know, like what sort of tasks need to be accomplished or how should we kind of go forward in the current terrain that uh, does start to accomplish some of these things we're talking about, whether it's creating spaces for action in the streets or creating infrastructure that's going to meet people's needs. Um, and also just speaking to the real frustration and anger and fear that a lot of people have right now. How do we do that in a really concrete way? we have this opening kind of like during the uprising where all of a sudden, not only do we have essential skills, but a lot of the kind of like wishy-washy liberal stuff about anarchists kind of drifts away in moments like this. And all of a sudden we become really useful to them. Right. Um, But in this moment, just like I think during the uprising, part of the reality of that outcome is that, that's happening because there's a wider questioning of what's going on. And that gives us a sort of space to build relationships and connections um, and things like this. And I think we can't discuss this question without also recognizing that we're discussing this question sort of 
in the midst of a pandemic that we're all still figuring out how to live in the middle of, um, that we're discussing it in a period of time in which, uh, there's a lot of separation and it's really difficult to sort of, uh, maintain trust relationships in the way that, that, that would have happened before. Um, and that we're in a space where, I mean, you know, I've talked about this with a lot of friends recently, but if you look at online discourse, it's gotten really toxic in ways like internally, like anarchists are being toxic to each other in ways that hasn't happened before. And a lot of that is the fact that a lot of people don't know each other anymore. We're not organizing this stuff in person anymore. We're not meeting each other anymore. Um, if we're going to build the resilient communities that we need to build to, say, continue access to reproductive health care, let alone destroy the state and completely, you know, rearrange the way that we live our lives. Um, that resiliency comes from trust and that trust can't be built over the internet. That trust has to come in person. That trust has to be built by being able to look someone in the eye and have a conversation with them, to be able to read the reactions, be able to be with them in the streets, to be able to be with them in projects. Right. And so, I know where I'm at right now, a lot of the effort of, say, my circle of people, um, besides helping some of the younger organizers that are coming in right now to do direct action stuff, sort of helping them um, to get logistics together and things like that, um, we're putting a lot of our energy into creating spaces and creating spaces where encounters can happen, where people who currently don't know each other but might have a um, pretty interesting future of complicity with one another um, can sort of come into contact, right? Then a lot of ways we have to reconstitute communities that have been fragmented by the pandemic. And I think during the uprising, there was a bit of that, but it was really difficult. And now that there's a little less hesitancy to be out in public, um, people are a little bit more comfortable with, you know, looking at infection rates, maybe needing to mask up every once in a while. Um, as we sort of acclimate to the pandemic reality that will be our future, um, I think this is the time to really start to talk about how we build the structures that we're going to need, not just for this fight, but for all the fights that we have coming, because this is not the last one. Um, just as we said when the uprising broke out, this is not the last struggle. Um, and it's not going to be the one that changes everything, but it might be something that contributes to that. And that will only happen if we put ourselves in a position to be able to make that happen. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. A huge part of the struggle where I am now is, is kind of that, that atomization and alienation isolation that has like, um, like where, where I live currently in the Midwest, um, it's, the town that I live in is pretty much controlled by like, like vaguely liberals, like moderate liberals. Um, and there's like other, there's, there's energy in the town for like other kinds of work and other ways of being. Um, but people like, I think that people are having a really hard time, like creating networks of care uh, with other people in the pandemic conditions. And like, I know uh, as a disabled person myself, it feels really hard, uh, because it's not safe for a lot of us to 
go out into public spaces um because like where I'm at there's nobody who's masking even in like more like rad even like in just like the radical spaces that I can find around where I'm at it's just like that that's not a practice at all and so it's really hard for people who are especially um vulnerable to the many different layers of that is being packed on top of us right now including the pandemic conditions it's really hard to um break free of that alienation and isolation that's also definitely a, a part of capitalist capitalism itself um but i think i agree, i definitely agree that moving past that finding ways to uh make real communities of care instead of just theorizing about them and about their possibilities um is what's needed because uh, not only do we need them and need alternative infrastructure for what we're facing now but um like you said there is many, many more escalating fights to come. And it's important to have places for people to go. Um, Cause I think there's also a problem of that. There's a lot of people who want to do work and in more rural or more like small towns in America, it's really hard to uh, connect people in that way. So I think that prioritizing creating those networks is definitely a really important part of the struggle. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.